I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Today's guest is someone I admire the work of. I I don't know if I would call her an artist or an activist or a writer. Uh, I don't know. I think her work really brings your emotions to the forefront in the form of visual art. She's the British artist Kate Dowdy. Kate is a visual artist and a writer recognized for her work in exploring and re-evaluating the human experience in the context of the natural world. Known for her written interventions in public and private spaces, her work is based mostly on ancient Chinese practices. She lives and works in London, and her observations have fed into an array of artistic disciplines, including sound work, film, performance, interactive collaborations, photography, sculptures. She had many large-scale installations, and more recently, a book. She exhibits her art worldwide and is also engaged in regular philanthropic and activist commitments. Kate is also a committed, dedicated mother of three and balances her creative chaos, if you want, with the discipline of providing the best she could for her children. As one reviewer uh, stated, uh, talking about Kate, much of her artistic work is intended not to survive, relishing the transitory nature of our experience of this earth, a love of the gesture for its own sake, and a rejection for consumerism. I am a huge fan. I don't know what we're going to talk about today, but I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with the incredible artist, Kate Doddy. So I've been very, very deeply immersed in exploring the feminine side of me. And I lived a very, a very long part of my life in the masculine, linear thinking, very, very disciplined, controlling strength and so on and so forth. And one of the areas where I'm actually exploring very heavily is the idea of flow. And basically, rather than trying to tame nature into what you want it to be, you actually flow with nature and let it tame you if you want which I think is an incredibly feminine quality. And I had several experiences where I could actually feel completely embodied and almost, you know, psychologically in the feminine because I was in total flow, not flow like, you know, performing a task like an artist, but in total flow with whatever life gives. And I realized that in those moments, the feminine perception of time is actually very different than the masculine perception of time at least my perception. My perception when I'm in in the masculine is highly associated with the arrow of time. So time is a line and it's sequential and things have to happen along that line. The feminine, I felt, was much more rhythmic. The bells are moving and if you actually can get yourself into that flow of nature, of all of what seems to be chaotic, there is a rhythm in it. And if you associate with that rhythm, then you're suddenly going across a different view of time. 
And the most interesting thing is that Stephen Hawking, before he died, started to actually bring that idea that time is not linear and time is actually circular, rhythmic. So it keeps repeating a longer rhythm. And that really intrigues me when you talk about your project and trying to find a rhythm or a pattern in what seems to be natural randomness. I think that's purely, purely the idea of rhythmic time or circular time. I was thinking about your concept of time when I was curiously on time for this because I have um, I have such because <laughs> it sent me a message saying ping I thought it was on the 8th actually bizarrely I was literally talking about it in the morning going I think because uh, I gave your book to somebody at home and uh, and I was saying oh yeah I'm going to talk to him on the 8th and I'm going to reread the book before I talk to him because I read oh, your no. book last summer and I thought it was so wonderful it's really a fantastic oh, thank you book. I've given it to several people and I think it's a a very important and wonderful book. I'm a great admirer of yours. And I'm not... Um, oh, thank you. I read it really in one sitting in Greece Did last, you? last summer. Yeah, it's a wonderful book. What's your next book? I actually submitted it to my publisher today, the final edit of it. It's a very different book. I, so I completed two books. One of them we edited completely and we were about to publish it. And then I gave them the second one, the third one, which now they made the second which was about artificial intelligence. Like Star Wars. Yeah, yeah, it was really interesting. Yeah, it's like Star <laughs> yeah. Wars. I love that. <laughs> I, I really use that. <laughs> you know, so so it's, it's about artificial intelligence. They believe it's very timely because, you know, I also have that life that I lived for a very long time as a, a Google executive. And, and I think that um, the non-techie, the non-geek, so a person like yourself who's accomplished in doing, you know, your own thing, but you're not into that level of depth in technology, does not know what's going on. And what's going on is quite eye-opening. It really is a wake-up call. Humanity really needs to realize or recognize that something very, very big is about to happen that will reshape everything we know about life, about art, about music, about everything, about work, about our relationships. And and so I submitted it today and you know how it is. I don't know if you feel that as an artist, but you sort of like, oh, maybe, maybe I just add a couple of touches here and a couple of that. You, know, you never really want to stop editing it and making it better. And my publisher was like, that's it. It's enough. I loved it this, since the day you sent it. So don't do anything more to it. Optimistic, but a bit scared because it's a very different topic. Mm -hmm. Yes, but is it connected to happiness? Is it connected to of your course. happiness? Yeah. Of course. My view is that we, humanity has rarely ever agreed on anything other than we all want to be happy and we want our loved ones to be happy. And so if we were to show a unified, positive face to the upcoming form of intelligence, it should be that. It should be that we want to be happy and we want our loved ones to be happy. It's the only thing we can all agree on. And the book is actually attempting to make that change, to tell people openly, unless you start doing that, we're going to end up with machines that are completely confused about what we want from life, serving the wrong objectives and maybe making mega mistakes. And have you, are you addressing your book to anyone in particular? Yeah, the first sentence in the introduction was, uh, this book is for the masses. And then the first person that read it as a beta reader told me, I'm not the masses. Don't call me the masses. And so, <laughs> so I qualified it a little bit by saying it's not for the geeks. It actually is for the people who are not geeks. Geeks know this. Geeks know it very well. 
it's the non-geeks that don't realize how massively reshaped our world is going to be. And so do you feel that your role as a sort of a person who's able to connect human and artificial, so the human soul and artificial intelligence is something that's like a, it seems to be quite a sort of political role, actually. It's like, a, you know, you can, really. uh, you can create an important everyday influence on people's lives if you get your book read by enough people, like your Soul for Happy, yeah. where you've oh, got yeah. an idea yeah. 100 million people. I'm a bit like you. Your art is beautiful, it's so attractive, and it's so, you stop in front of it and you ponder, right? But in reality, there is a message. It's not the brush stroke or the embroidery or whatever on the tent. The visual art is just the canvas, if you want, in which you communicate your message. Yes, yeah. And by doing that, you're not trying to influence the decision makers. You know, your tent, which is a wonderful project that I'd love to talk about, it is to influence the people, is to influence every single one of us to connect to that idea of people in refugee camps and displacement and so on. I'm trying to do the same. I actually don't believe that neither the politicians nor even the code developers themselves will have much to do with the shape of our future. It's the intelligence that's coming into our world is a new form of being. It's not biological, but it is in every possible way, it behaves like a human. It thinks, it makes decisions, it's autonomous. It will have emotions, it will have consciousness, it will have ethics. And we did not have many beings in our lives that were similar to this before. But interestingly, if we had, you know, your dog or your puppy or whatever, which has a few of those things, it wasn't more intelligent than you. This new being is way more intelligent than all of us combined. Have you read uh, Clara and the Sun, the new book by Kazuo Ishiguro? No, I should. It's about a being an artificial intelligence being that takes care of a, of a young girl. My daughter's reading it. I'm a great admirer of Kazuo Ishiguro. And he, when he's interviewed, he talks very interestingly about this, this idea of the human intelligence. And the, the, there isn't much difference in the book, really. You don't know. It's told from the perspective of the girl who is a, who is a robot, in fact. But <laughs> she, she seems to be more giving of love and sweetness than the human because she's been trained to be that person she's been programmed to have that characteristic and so it's like what do you consider to be valuable as human qualities which is i think a lot of the stuff that i'm looking at in in my work um, looking at how we're all connected and that we're all the same through space and time as human beings so if you're goat herd in ancient egypt or lady living in Yorkshire with a passion for crochet, as you say, the qualities that connect both of those people are the same. You know, they love their family, they want them to be happy, they consider questions of faith and science and uh, progress and their mortality. It's all the same, really. It's just different envelopes. Like you were saying about your gender, you know, mm -hmm. it's uh, your soul transcends all of those superficialities of, of time and circumstance and space and so on. That's kind of, uh, I'm interested in that also. It does require quite a bit of a different pace of life. I mean, do you go to your studio every day? And you may go to the studio and, and some of those days you don't even know what you're going to do today. Does that happen to you? I do, but I have this really 
non-arrow kind of idea of time but my time is divided up into sort of tasks so when i come in here i set my alarm to so that i leave and go and pick up my son from from school because otherwise you wouldn't feel the time yeah Um, (laughs) (laughs) now i've started setting my alarm for for lunch because uh because i get a bit kind of like crabby you You would forget to eat yeah yeah because there's so much to do and it's so interesting and fun i mean apart from like all the crap i do on my computer which seems to be kind of endless at the moment but um Uh but yeah so that's why i was thinking about your idea of time because you sent me this little time calendar and it said you know choose your day and you know all this thing and i was like man that's a guy you know who's got a really precise idea of time (laughs) i do and i don't actually so i'm If you remember in Soul for Happy, I spoke about what I call brain time and practical time. To do what I do, you have to really master practical time. And if you have a moment, listen to uh, Nir Eyal on my podcast. Mm -hmm. I hosted him a couple of, maybe three, four episodes ago, who spoke about something called Indistractable. He wrote a book and it's an incredible piece of work. And he was so generous. He shared for an hour and a half about all of his tricks to manage practical times. Practical time to me is I wake up in the morning, I'm the CEO of a startup, I'm the co-founder of another startup. I write, I, you know, I write several books at the same time. I record slow-mo, I, you know, have my hobbies and I speak publicly and I do so many things. So they have to fit perfectly in specific slots. Yes. But then within the slot, I can do whatever I want. So if I'm going to do two and a half hours to three hours of writing in the morning, I am completely a free spirit during those two and a half, three hours. The idea is to stick to writing, but I could be writing about artificial intelligence or I'm writing now a book with a friend about stress. It's called Stressed. I'm writing about the feminine for a long time. Actually, I've been working on that book in the background called Her. And I would wake up in the morning and I have no clear intention of what I'm going to write today unless I have a deadline. Otherwise, I just sit there and then something goes like, ooh, let's open this file. Yeah. I actually want to ask you because your work seems to be, is that even true? But you seem to have the inspiration first and then you put the artwork in place. So you would tell yourself, I want to tell the world about this. And then you would find the visual way to do it. Or is it the other way around? Yeah, they're kind of interconnected. But um, so, for example, now... I'm doing this body of work about chaos, mm-hmm. chaos, which kind of came out of, yeah, which kind of came out of the coronavirus last year. There was this whole feeling that there was a sort of unraveling of the world, do you know, that mm-hmm. um, suddenly everyone's wearing a mask and, you know, what does it mean? And Donald Trump, I didn't want to say like political things, but was like president of the United States. And we had Brexit here in the UK and suddenly, you know, just everything seemed to be kind of falling apart. And um, I was just thinking about chaos. And then I have this great friend who's a scientist. He discovered a thing called graphene, which you probably use quite a lot in your um, tech things. He's called Kostya. He's the youngest man ever to get a Nobel Prize for physics. And we have an ongoing project forever called Everything is Connected. And we talk a lot. And I said, oh, you know, we should, we should do a podcast about uh, chaos because it's such an interesting, you know, it can be divided up into different topics and so on. And then we did that. And it was very interesting. Did you? 
I want to yeah. see it. I was going to say, come both of you and talk. I mean, chaos is one of my favorite topics. Every physicist loves chaos. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah. Yeah. It's what makes everything, right? So entropy exactly. is the reason we exist. So, so we love it. Yeah. So this is exactly what this show is about. So we're taking over the whole of the Yorkshire Sculpture Park in the north of England, which is, I don't know, like 680 hectares. And we're filling it with work and ideas about uh, looking at the idea of, of chaos and creativity, chaos and time, chaos and uh, wow. harmony, uh, looking at it from every aspect. So, um, and so then I suppose each of the works uh, illustrates an idea and a, and a sort of philosophical way of looking at different aspects of, of chaos in that instance, yeah? Depends on the work, of course. And then some works, I just, just make them and I don't really know why I'm making them and uh, they just kind of fall <laughs> out. Yeah. The tent, I made the tent um, about like uh, six years ago. That's a work, like a lot of my work, which is about home and identity, really, and about what connects us as human beings. And so that started off I suppose is, it's not really illustrating something, but it's inviting people to consider other ways of looking at things and questions that they might not have asked themselves otherwise. And I think that's an important job for an artist. So that's what I do with my work. I invite people to consider things from a different perspective or maybe from many perspectives all at the same time. I wanted to start our conversation by asking you this. So, so I'm, I'm actually a very good uh, charcoal uh, portraits artist. Yeah, I can draw hyper realistic stuff, almost uh -huh. like a plotter. I think I think it's a defect in my brain. <laughs> no, no, seriously, because I can see a portrait exactly as it is. I don't see lines, and I just see billions of pixels, and I just capture them really well. But I don't consider that art at all. You know, my daughter, on the other hand, who is hyper artistic, never really captures reality in her art. She she just you know every time I go like oh, I never thought of that before. And I don't know. I mean, why is it that some work, I say this, of course, with admiration of your work, but it's a tent, right? I've seen a million tents before. None of them inspired me, right? Why did this one inspire me? Why did this one go so big and everyone started to talk about it and it's exhibited in some of the most strategic places on earth? What makes art art? Why do we think of certain things as art and other things are not? It's a difficult question for an artist to answer, right? <laughs> um, <and I laughs> you think, must know something. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, um, I was looking at a beautiful interview with Leonard Cohen the other day, who was uh -huh. talking about, I'm very interested in, I don't know if you're familiar with this uh, Spanish poet called uh, Federico García Lorca. Uh, I know the name, I, yeah, but I've not read his work. So I was doing lots of, I'm doing an exhibition also in, in Spain in, uh, later this year about his work and about poetry in general and impermanence, sort of the nature of impermanence. So I was, I was looking up um, stuff on YouTube and uh, Leonard Cohen is mainly inspired by the poetry of Lorca and he was taught the guitar by a Spaniard and he's getting this prize from the king of Spain and he's saying everything that I owe is comes from Spain but nobody knows this about my work and da, 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 and, da, da, da. and he was saying 
precisely this. He was saying he didn't know where the good songs came from because if he knew, he would have written more good songs, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> 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 <you know? laughs> and uh, I thought that was a very good point, you know, because uh, of course, if people knew where great artworks come from, then they wouldn't, uh, they'd be making them all the time. There's a uh, Michelangelo who I, uh, he said a very funny thing. I think a lot of good work comes out of just hard work you know and he said this great thing which is if people knew how hard i worked they wouldn't think i was a good sculptor <laughs> <laughs> i believe in that completely so so you know i think that's probably my biggest handicap if you want is that i really really work hard i make it look easy but i really work hard and i love what i do so it's not it's not like stressful or painful but i put in the hours and you know, I very frequently discard things, you know, if you ever come visit me, I'll make you the best coffee on planet Earth. Hopefully I would make you the best coffee on planet Earth. But it's not because, uh, you know, I'm an artist. It's because I've really studied coffee and I've really put in the time and I really, really can smell it from a mile away to tell you it's going to be bitter. But that actually is what works, I think, against art, isn't it? I mean, you have to get the inspiration, the idea, the spark first, and then the work follows, right? For example, speaking of the tent, that work, I felt an enormous sense of responsibility towards the people who'd talked to me, who'd taken the, kindly taken the time to talk with me about their experience. So um, for that work, I, I went and spoke to refugees all over the Middle East and in Southern Europe, asking them about what, if anything, they'd learned about being a human being from losing their home and losing their identity and having to sort of rebuild it. Because I have this idea that if we're all connected, if everybody is connected, if we're all part of one same thing, then there must be something that we can learn from other people's suffering that, A, gives it some sense and some purpose because it can educate us and inform us for trying to build a better future. And now there's 74 million refugees, I think, at the moment. Um, there were only, I mean, there were only, there were 68 when that whole tent project uh, started out. So it's going up all the time. And a lot of that is because mm -hmm. of um, environmental uh, reasons. But anyway, point is, I spoke to so many people. I spoke to people from maybe like uh, 70 or 80 different nationalities in all sorts of different circumstances. And I heard so many stories, so many beautiful stories. And that's another reason why I like your book so much, of people who had overcome enormous difficulties, who sat and explained to me that they were really lucky. And you'd almost kind of end up kind of agreeing with them. You know, so you'd be sitting there in some godforsaken refugee camp surrounded by rocks and uh, where people had to walk to fetch their water and people explaining that you know, they'd lost most of their family, but that they were really lucky because they still had their auntie living with them or that mm. um, you know they still love to see the beautiful a lot of people had left with um, seeds in their pockets from their home place and they had grown these beautiful gardens outside their tents and mm. the children's toys would be like a little tomato plant or something like that and um, the happiness and joy that I experienced from being with these people who'd gone through so much and who decided, who'd made this decision, who'd made an engagement to be happy and to be grateful and mm -hmm. to appreciate what they have 
was something it really changed my life actually and um when you ask people in these circumstances what have you learned do you have a message for people from from the rest of the world because these people are in their camps and they you don't meet people from the outside world they're not allowed out of their camps really and people aren't really allowed in you might expect that people would say oh i'm here because of the terrible circumstances that brought me here and this should stop or please send us money and help or there's a variety of things that one might imagine that people would say when they've ended up in a refugee camp with half their family that they've picked up in and buried in plastic bags you know um oh my god but but they for the most part said well uh, tell people to appreciate what they have and that our life is what our thoughts make it and i think when you've got such a powerful message from so many people who so generously took the time to tell me about what had happened to them and their experience of being a human being from their perspective i think i i felt that i had to make something that expressed even a fraction of the beauty of the human spirit really i think that was my inspiration and i think it still is my inspiration in most of my work um an enormous deep lover of the human being yeah and making this work this tenth really every moment i mean of course you know i have sort of ups and downs and whatever but but like i know when i go into the underground for example that just from my experience that more than half of the people in this train carriage who are now looking a bit grumpy and sitting on their phones or whatever if god forbid some terrible thing were to happen most people would do something incredibly generous brave selfless say something beautiful to the other person before they passed away i know this to be true <laughs> and so that's something that i really want people to know you know because i think a lot of the time people feel that the future's kind of coming at them like a kind of juggernaut you know and it's like there's nothing they can do you know you watch the news and you're like oh my god you know there's nothing how can i make a contribution to a yeah. better future you know there's it all seems out of my control but not at all you know we're each individually well neither more nor less important than we should be and each of us is able to make a very positive contribution to creating a better world and and that's something that i'm trying to say in my work i suppose and that's something that i really liked about your book indeed because there's an idea now which i think is a pity in contemporary art although i think it's sort of changing maybe a little but it's the same in literature you can't be a really intelligent successful human being and happy mm -hmm. it's sort of slightly cheesy right <laughs> you know it's like well you know it's all right for them you know and you have to be quite brave well to try to be intelligent and accomplished and uh, taken seriously with a very serious and deep message about the possibility for happiness and that's something that i don't see around that much in art or literature or even really in the literature about your book for example which might be considered to be what i don't know like a sort of self help book we try to call it smart non-fiction to avoid the idea of yeah. self so smart non-fiction yeah. so i haven't read many books of that sort and that book was so remarkable because it also 
it got out of this contemporary idea of happiness, which is that happiness is all about you being good inside yourself and sort of inward looking. It's like, well, I'm happy because I got what I wanted. And what I like about your idea is that you're happy because you're communicating with other people and that you're connected with your neighbor, child, tree, you're giving the best that you can of yourself. And I think that that's something that um, that's actually quite an unusual message and uh, all power to your arm, as they say. <laughs> I am 100% with you. I think, I think the reality is there is even scientific research that will tell you there was a study done in Stanford that basically showed that people respect those who are negative and grumpy more than they respect those who are happy and open and, you know, inviting because it seems to them that those are, you know, when you're grumpy and frowning, you must be concerned with bigger problems in the world. You know, I used to write music at a young age. I don't even play well anymore, but I used to compose on the guitar. And yeah, of course, you know, you get a little bit of a heartbreak and then you write an amazing song. But then you tell yourself, so what do I mean by that? Do I need heartbreaks in my life to be inspired? And then afterwards you realize that you can actually can do much, much more impressive and beautiful and inviting and inspiring things by being motivated by the positive, motivated by the beauty of humanity rather than the evil in it. You don't need to capture, I mean, the, again, the way the tent captures the gratitude rather than the, you know, disgruntlement is so beautiful. It's almost the idea of saying, yeah, I want to remind you of the refugees that lived in that tent, but I also want to remind you of how wonderful your life really is. You idiot, like look at your life and, and just realize how lucky you are. And does that make you an activist, a humanist? What, what are you? We know you're an artist, right? But <laughs> what else is that? Um, I don't know. I think I have an idea that I wouldn't say, I don't know. What do you say? <laughs> I'm surely an activist. I'm, I'm a nicely subtle, but surely an active. I mean, I really am sleeping every night thinking of what can I do tomorrow to make our world slightly, just slightly, a little bit better. Me too. So I guess I'm an activist also, oh. if that's what an activist is. I don't do enough, but certainly I would like to give as much as I possibly can to convey this message that we are more used to one another if we can appreciate what we have and be kind to one another because everything is connected. I mean, it's just literally, it's just a fact, you know, it's not, um, it's not an opinion. And that's the thing that's fun about working with Kostya, the scientist, is that we've got like, um, you know, he's always laughing at me because he's like, oh, you know, you're, you love human beings and he's like, oh, he, he pretends that he doesn't. But, but we are all, <laughs> never, <laughs> but we are all nevertheless connected and literally made of the same stuff with different arrangements of carbon and different elements and water and this little bit of carbon in my left wrist is going to end up in perhaps less than a hundred yeah. years at the farthest ripple at the edge of our universe and you know we should kind of bear that in mind and sort of relativize and uh and yeah. enjoy our existence because we don't have it for long you know i mean it sounds like a silly uh, thing to say but that is something that I'm really trying to get across in my in my work. And to be kind of, try to be a bit respectful also of what it means to be a human being. It's a really wonderful thing to be a human being. I mean, we don't get it, uh, we don't get it for long. <laughs>
I'm with you. Did you watch the show on Netflix, Connected? No. Uh, uh, Latif Nas. Oh my God, I interviewed him. I, he's a wonderful, wonderful person. He did five, I think five or six episodes on a show called Connected on Netflix. I'm sure you'll have it in the UK. Okay. And it is incredible. He also is Harvard PhD of some sort. So he looks at it from a fun but scientific way. And everything, he basically shows that how a fish that lived a million years ago is just the peach that you ate and the breath that you breathe. It's so wonderful. And it's really an incredible show. So Shelley Lewis, who introduced us, which is one of the most wonderful human beings on planet Earth, like hands down, <laughs> you know, it doesn't get better than this. And she thought you were a wonderful human being too. And I understand why now. But she also was very intrigued by the idea that you're so into what you do and you're a mother of three. Uh-huh. And I, I am a very big champion of showing women how incredible you can be when you raise three children, have that full responsibility, but also be so passionate and committed and impactful in your work. And I saw you in an interview once, I don't remember which one, where uh, you were talking about how COVID-19 was giving you a lot of inspiration, but also a lot of cooking. (laughs) (laughs) How do you balance those two things? (laughs) Um, Well, sometimes I get a bit upset, actually, it must be said. (laughs) But I think um, I have incredibly nice children. I had three children in four years, which was quite a sort of uh, focused uh, little... That's like really on the edge. Yeah. Yeah. You can't do it any faster than this. Yeah. I think I didn't really understand about birth control, do you know? And uh, I was like, ah, (laughs) if I want to... And uh, anyway, so they're really wonderful children. And they are... In fact, they're the inspiration for my work, really, because without them, there's a, I'm sure you know, there's a very famous artist called Tracy Emin, who said, can't be a serious woman artist and, and have children. And that's why I didn't have any children, she said. And sometimes I do look at, um, there's an artist I very much admire called Conrad Shawcross. I don't know if you've come across his work. He's a great artist. And I was looking at an interview with him and he was saying, yes, it's amazing. I, I, sometimes I work for three whole days and uh, I don't go home. And <laughs> I was like, wow, that's really different from my life with my alarm clock and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and the mums from school ringing me and saying, you know, did you remember the muffins for tomorrow morning and so on. <laughs> oh, man. I have to say, looking at your work, it can't be seen that you're doing all those things as well. <laughs> well, I get up very early in the morning. I get up at five o'clock. And I really, I try to work really hard. And then when my kids are home from school, I'm just with them. That's wonderful. And so then, because I'm quite happy and fulfilled in my work, I think it made me a much better, well, maybe not better, but happier mother. Because you go home and your kids like have thrown mashed potato all over the place and it's chaos and that. (laughs) But like, it's okay because you've done your work. So you're just there to look after your children. And there's no sense, I've never really felt a sense that my time would be better spent doing something else because I'm very fortunate to have my my life kind of divided into two, right? I mean, I don't want to say I don't have any friends. I do have lots of friends, but I don't make much time to sort of, I don't really have any friends in the art world. I don't know. I don't really know anybody. In oh, is that true? Yeah. 
I'm quite a bit like you, actually. I mean, I have tons of friends, but I'm very specific about how much of my time goes to things other than my passions and my hobbies and my work and, you know, the stuff that I'm trying to do. It's not like I'm completely self-isolating and never seeing anyone, but definitely I don't recall the last time I wasted an hour and a half watching a football match. I calculate everything in pages. So a football match would probably be around, you know, four to eight pages of something that can make a difference to the world. So I do play a lot of video games, though. I apologize for that. Oh, oh, man. I watched quite a lot of Formula One with my son. Oh, there you go. But that's nice because I'm holding his hand, which I think is an activity. (laughs) You know, I love that. That's the best activity on earth. Yeah. And if he lets you, then you've achieved. There well, you go. Well, because he's really absorbed on the Formula One, so I can kind of sneakily hold his hand. Yeah. <laughs> My so old son, wonderful. who's 17, he's in that patch. I don't know if your beautiful son ever got like that, but he's in this patch where he finds me so annoying that sometimes when I'm, <laughs> sometimes when I'm talking to him, he literally has his his hands over his eyes and he's just like oh my god you know and I'm just like trying to think of something to say that isn't too annoying so you know would you like some broccoli you know and I was like that's not the right thing (laughs) (laughs) so Ali actually never really I think the one time in his life where he got really really annoyed was with Aya his sister so there was one time where he actually pushed her outside his room but then other than that the other time he would basically say would you please leave me now? I mean, I just would like some time alone now. Can you please leave me now? And she really, really annoys him. However, if I, you know, rolled my eyes or his mother, you know, sort of told him something like putting her hands on her face or whatever, he would respond with a very standard response every single time. And it got me every single time. He would look me in the eyes and say, I love you. And as simple as that. Okay. And what do you say to this? I mean, I just rolled my eyes, you know, in front of you about what you just said. And he goes like, I love you. It's sort of basically saying, I noticed you and I forgive you. (laughs) Literally treating me like a child. It's like, I noticed you, I forgive you. And it doesn't matter. I still love you. Okay. So when you're in a better mood, come and talk to me, little child. That is how how he used to treat me. It was really incredible. That's Uh, great. Yeah. Yeah. I will say, however, I think when he's in his 20s, most of my friends, their sons would really, really show up. (laughs) They'd realize how wonderful you have been to them and that there will always be differences, but it's fine. So they'll show up. My son, all the way through the COVID, he volunteered for a local charity. He was amazing. He got up early in the morning and went and helped run a food bank and ran errands for old ladies. And he even like put on a hazmat suit and cleaned out the apartment of this old man who they, because there was lots of very interesting things in, in the UK during COVID. There was a lot of, a lot of social problems that hadn't been paid attention to that came to the attention of the social services and to people's neighbors because people suddenly started to pay attention to their community, right? Because everybody was Mm. thinking, oh, we better look after each other. So this old man, for example, had been living in an apartment for something like 50 years without anybody really talking to him at all. He had one guy who'd bring him food who was apparently kind of ripping him off or whatever. But when the COVID broke out, the neighbors on his sort of floor called in the social services and different charities because they were worried about him catching the COVID. It's very interesting because in a way, 
the chaos engendered by the COVID, for example, has given rise to some positive things many. in certain communities. Of course, many, many terrible, terrible things, but also some good things that we could have done without learning them through the COVID. But people mm. seem to have spent more time with their loved ones and been more sweet to one another. And um, certainly in amongst my entourage, I've got a lot of friends too, who are saying that they really don't want to get back into socializing like they used to. <laughs> you know, going out for dinner and seeing people pointlessly. It's like, why would you see someone if you can just quickly have a little Zoom call? And I think that's kind of interesting, you know? I mean... I hope that we don't go back to our crazy way of life. I really, really do. I mean, and I make public commitments in front of everyone that I will never, ever again travel as crazy as I used to travel before. It's better for my back, better for my well-being, but much, much better for the planet. I mean, I was one of the top polluters that you would have ever seen, uh, millions of miles on Emirates Airlines, right? And you don't even notice it because you tell yourself, oh, but I'm doing it for a good reason and I'm going to be speaking to 10,000 people and so many of them are going to be happy. Yeah, you can do it on Zoom, you know, seriously, right? But I also think that, interestingly, the, the two projects that you're working or two concepts you're working on to, are very connected with COVID because COVID brought on a lot of chaos, but it's also made us really connected. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's in my view, the one time where humanity was all, at least in my lifetime, where we had differences in our lives, but we were all unified by that one big thing that did not discriminate between tall and short and man or woman or whatever gender you choose to be. And if everything everything becomes, oh, we're all under the same challenge. You know, we're all under the same threat. Did they ask you to work on trying to find a cure with your Google X experience and the sort of cr the creativity <laughs> way of looking at it? Yeah? No. My view of it, which I know makes me really boring, is I basically very quickly calculated, and my partner at work will tell you that we had that conversation. We were in a car in New York City, if I remember, rushing between meetings. And I basically told him, look, there is one of two scenarios. Either this will end summer to November 2020, or it will last for two to three years. But either way, it will end. And either way, you know, if we've managed to go through the Spanish flu in 1920, with no technology whatsoever, and SARS in the 21st century with a lot of technology, we're going to get through this one. Yeah. And I have that weird approach in life where I sort of look at challenges that face me, and I, if I know that they're going to work or I know that I don't have the capability, I don't spend a minute on them, like not a single minute thinking about it anymore. I was like, okay, so that's it. Brace yourself, and we'll see what's going to happen. And my guess is we may get one more cycle of challenge, unless, of course, you know, something morphs or a new strand appears or whatever. But I think we will, I think there might be another lockdown in winter. Yeah. A much milder one. And then we'll be fine. And I, I think also we've already integrated it in our way of life in a very interesting way. So whether it stays or it goes, we're more or less now able to handle it, I think. The beauty of humanity really is we can always adapt and find a way. Yeah, but it's also the downfall of humanity is that we can get used to anything. And I think that because we <laughs> <Say> can... It. <laughs> it's true, right? Because if you can get used to anything, then sometimes you, you can get used to anything in a bad way too. Do you know, so they can sort of hold your head 
further and further under the water and you lose perspective on things and um mm. and you don't remember that actually you could be without somebody pushing your <laughs> head underneath the water and that it could be okay and you you could actually be quite happy and i think that's why people need books like your book for example because people forget that there's an opportunity for everybody to use their time more judiciously perhaps or to a greater purpose because you just get stuck in a rhythm no you're just like uh, oh yeah you get conditioned you get completely conditioned yeah. you forget what it could be like exactly you forget the big picture and that is because we also it's the other side of how we get used to everything so yeah it's not ideal and you look at people who train to be ballet dancers and things like that you know the moment they stop they're like oh my god you know i could have been eating steak and <laughs> yeah. Oh, there is a life out there. I don't have to jump two meters in the air every now and then. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not criticizing. I'm, you know, I'm doing my own ballet conditioning myself. Like, you know, I put my head down. I was actually talking to, to the person I'm writing the next book with and basically saying, oh, I submitted my book today in the morning. So great. And now I can start immediately to work on the book that we're working together on. And, you know, it's like it doesn't even cross my mind to take a week, you know, and, and just chill and maybe sit on a beach somewhere or whatever. It's just, you know. Because that's how you're happy, you know. Sometimes I find it. I have this friend who's married to a very great cellist, yeah. And we were at this, he was giving a concert and then we were chatting. Uh, we all had supper afterwards. And, and she was saying, oh. I'm so happy because I'm taking Stephen away for 10 days or whatever to the Bahamas and it's going to be so great. And I was looking at him and I was like, wow, that's a long time without your cello. And, uh, <laughs> and he was going, yeah, you know, I don't know what to do on holiday, you know. And I find it quite sort of, for me, sometimes it's quite an effort to be completely on holiday because you go away. And so, for example, we always go to Greece and I love being in Greece. It's really fantastic. But you know, I'm quite far away from my studio, do you know, and then you get loads of ideas. <laughs> what if I get an idea? <laughs> yes, like, what, what do I do, I do, I do then? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like writing them down, drawing. You're like, oh, if I, I'd better go on a five-hour swim to kind of exhaust that idea out of myself, you know? <laughs> no. <laughs> and then everyone kind of like, come back. so nice, we're so relaxed, you know, it's like, really? Do you know, I'm quite relaxed when I've done a bit of work, actually, do you know, and then I can... <laughs> <laughs> so to divide it up on a 24-hour basis you know it's kind of uh yeah don't tell me those things as a matter of fact i intend <laughs> to take a vacation i do intend maybe in five to six years time but i do intend to take a serious vacation <laughs> you can take a vacation at the end of the day you know you can ring someone and that's the thing also that if you're with people who love you and you love them they understand that about you and they just accept you for who you are and you can yeah. be the person who doesn't really want to go on vacation, you know, just the person you've got this to give and that's what you've got to give. I agree. I yeah. mean, I'll probably say then, you know, it would be wise of me not to take more of your time, but I would expect that you'll send me a picture of what you're going to develop today. Okay. So, you know, I think you're going to make something amazing. I think you always do. As a matter of fact, it's uh, quite an inspiration, even though it's a different form of art to see how you can summarize. I mean, I try to summarize my feelings and emotions and logic in 200, 300 pages. You, you summarize it in a, an image, right, in something. And, and I think that's 
It's really amazing. It's really a mega talent and something that we're grateful that you can do because it uh, inspires us and it pleases us. Well, ditto to you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Kate. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a wonderful one. Thank you so much for opening up and talking so openly about everything. It's really been a wonderful conversation. It's a great pleasure to make your acquaintance. Thank you very much. I love that conversation. I, I, I hope you guys didn't mind. We were just talking as true friends, honestly. I, you know, I, I wasn't thinking about you during this podcast. I just met a new person that I really admire uh, the work of and that has been highly recommended to me by someone I adore, so our common friend, uh, Shelley. So anyway, I will hope that you have enjoyed it as much as I did. And definitely, if you did, please do tell people about Slow-Mo, spread the message rate the podcast five stars on your Apple Podcasts if you haven't done so and leave a nice comment. And um, a bit of a post here on social media every now and then. We're trying to reach as many people as we can. You know, your help is highly, highly appreciated. Find me on social media if you want to stay in touch and tell me some of your feedback and ideas. I'm mo underscore gaudet on Instagram, mo gaudet on LinkedIn, uh, mo.gaudet.official on Facebook and mgaudet on Twitter. Now go back, do your stuff, organize your day. But remember that it doesn't matter how busy you are today. There's always a little bit of time to slow down. I love you all for listening and for giving me the alibi to speak to so many wonderful people. And I'll see you next time.